Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Uh, I'm Daniel, and I have the privilege of being up here uh, to go through the end of Acts 12. Now, if you don't know who I am or don't mind pictures, uh, here's a picture of Sarah and Levi. I go with them. She's right there. Um, as this picture mentions, Levi's now in pre-K, and he's four and a half. Uh, and if you look really close under the favorite things to do uh, on the board in the bottom left, you'll see, look for snails. Now, he doesn't love all bugs, but looking for snails is a fun hobby. And since it rained last weekend, Levi and I, Levi and I did just that. So here's a couple of snail pictures from last weekend's rain, <laughs> just because. Uh, I'm sure collecting snails is obviously what you were up to as well. Uh, we actually found 164, which took us a while to count. Anyway, uh, if you do know me already, and you're wondering uh, why I'm up here speaking this morning, that's Tim's fault. So uh, definitely blame him, because I'm a little nervous, and uh, I'll certainly be blaming him too. So anyway, I'd like to start by opening our time in prayer, and then uh, let's jump in and talk about the crazy passage we just read. God, uh, I just pray that this morning um, your word would shine through, that it wouldn't be my message, but it'd be your message. And God, um, just as we sang about, you're holy. Please help us to, um, to see you in the passage and see um, how we can love and follow you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to talk about the gospel spreading in the midst of Herod's death. Now, I will admit that the good news of Jesus spreading and Herod dropping dead uh, aren't a connection I would have made either, uh, but Luke certainly does. So before we dive into the details, I just want to get a quick poll. What's your first reaction? What's your hot take? Are you someone who starts with, that was totally overkill, I don't see why God killed Herod for that, or dude, those Herods were murderous villains, I can't believe it took so long. So, all right, for the first one, seems like overkill, hands, anyone? Wow, no one there. Okay. How, how about he had it coming? Anyone? All right, a lot more hands for that. I'm guessing that most of the second group there remembers how Herod was in last week's passage. Uh, he killed the Apostle James. He tried to kill the Apostle Peter. And failing that, he killed the guards who were supposed to be watching Peter. Now, before we look at the Acts passage again, maybe I can get your opinion on one, other, uh, one from the Old Testament. Here's a moment from 1 Chronicles uh, 13, 7 through 10. They moved the Ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the Ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Now, it's another sudden death moment, just begging for more context. But if we're honest, most of the time we keep scrolling or share our opinion without that. I mean, we might even get upset. Aren't there more wicked men even today who are more deserving? This incident's from the Old Testament, and we're not actually going to cover it this morning. But I bring it up because it's the same God, and this doesn't just happen in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So how do we deal with what seems like unfairness here, uh, or when the text challenges our judgment and makes us uncomfortable? Well, in this day and age, we tend to like taking sides. There's always some political feud on Twitter, or even in Christian circles, we've always got some hot-button theological issue to debate how I'm right and you're wrong, 
and how someone else is saying stupid things and everyone should know better, right? And all this drama, it just allows us to judge others while therapeutically feeling better about ourselves. It's human nature. It's entertainment. And though it's my temptation to look at a passage uh, like this and cheer for the apostles and sneer at Herod, I don't think that's a healthy way to be approaching the Bible. As Tim has been saying about the, uh, the series we're in, Acts is a book about the good news of Jesus' resurrection, spreading by the Spirit of God through the early church. So as we look at the story and examine who Herod was, uh, keep in mind that just like in the rest of Scripture, God's the main character, and he's the main character in this passage too. Now, it's easy to forget, though, that we are all human. God is who he is, and as we read, we should remember that we're probably like the humans in the story, in some ways, and paying attention to what God does. We should be cheering for him, not the humans, noticing both his justice and his grace. So looking at this passage, my central point today is going to be that God's patience is grace. But don't take it for granted. If we're given faith and we're given grace, given the ears to hear, our response should be repentance, thankfulness, and hope. So now that you know where I'm headed today, uh, let's take it from the top, Acts 12, midway through verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Then Herod. These two words are going to require a lot of backstory. I mean, first of all, the word then is pointing back to what happened in the first half of the chapter. Last week, we read about how Herod had James killed, an apostle, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. And seeing that it made the Jews happy, he tried to do the same thing to Peter, who only escaped by miraculous intervention. So some observations here. First of all, Herod was powerful enough to have people killed. And it wasn't just James. When the guards who were supposed to be watching Peter failed, he had them killed too. He was powerful and brutal. Second, Herod liked making Jews happy. He cared what others thought about him. It could have been a keeping himself in power thing. It could have been a pride thing, although it was probably a bit of both. See, what others thought was probably important to his standing, because the third observation we can make here is that Herod wasn't Caesar. I mean, at this time, the Jewish nation was occupied and owned by Rome. While the Romans seemed to let their conquered people self-rule to a point, uh, it was only at the pleasure of Caesar. If Caesar didn't like you in power, not only were your ruling days over, but usually your breathing days were over too. So if you look up Herod and go to the Wikipedia article, it's going to take some time to sort out who's who, because there were at least six ruling Herods around this time period. It's all important and interesting stuff, and it's also totally full of drama. I mean, the Herod we're looking at was Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great. And though Herod the Great was elected king by the Roman Senate, yeah, I, I don't know how elections for king work, um, the rest of these guys seem to have been appointed or granted their positions by whoever was Caesar at the time. Now, maybe that made them a bit more insecure than normal dictators or something, I, I don't know. But these Herods were brutal. And Herod the Great was extra brutal. He was the one in Luke who tried to kill Jesus as a baby because travelers from the east arrived to celebrate the birth of a king. But Herod wasn't taking the risk that a random infant might someday become king instead of him, and his line. So he ordered all the less than two-year-old boys in Bethlehem killed. 
Can, can you believe that kind of evil? And not just from him, but from everyone who carried out that order. But it definitely doesn't stop there. There's a quote attributed to Caesar where he reportedly said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. And again, we're still talking about Herod the Great, grandfather of the guy in Acts 12. So why better to be a pig than a son? Well, Herod was Jewish and wouldn't kill pigs. That'd be totally unclean. But he ended up killing at least three of his sons, two for allegedly plotting against him. Who knows if they actually did that or not. Now, Herod Antipas, uh, this was the son of Herod the Great and Herod Aquila's uncle. Well, he was the one in charge when John the Baptist was executed. And Antipas was also the one in power when Jesus was crucified. So that's the family that Herod Aquila was born into. Dictatorial authority, as long as you bowed a knee to Caesar and sent him his tax money. And local power, as long as you played Jewish politics right and kept the high priest happy. You had tons of extra tax money to live like you wanted and the ability to kill anyone you wanted. So with that introduction, let's read verses 19 and 20. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Now, there's a lot more politics going on here than I'm going to cover today. And if you want to geek out on it, like, go for it. Biblical commentators, googling their proper names. Uh, and if you have questions, my geeking out on biblical history email also happens to be mike at covalley.com. <laughs> I think it's important to note here, though, uh, the text says that the people who wanted to meet with Herod depended on him. They needed Herod to like them because their food supply depended on it. Their goal was to sweet-talk him because he had power over them. Now, Herod's the one with total control of the situation here. At least, that's how it seems to everyone. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. So Herod shows off his royal robes, sitting on his throne, demonstrating the symbols of wealth and power and authority. He puts in effort to add weight to his presence and glory to his appearance. And then, then he delivers his speech. That was probably pretty good. Maybe really good. His audience calls him a god, which might also have been total flattery because they wanted his support. But let's face it, it was still probably a pretty good speech. But notice that Luke doesn't give us any of the content. I mean, we've already read sermons from Stephen and Peter, and we'll read quite a bit from Paul too. So why doesn't Luke tell us what Herod said? Why doesn't the Bible tell us these details? Exactly. It's not the point. It's not important. See, Herod's speech is so not the point. A better question than trying to figure out what isn't there is trying to figure out what is there. What should we learn from the scripture God gave us? Let's look at how the next verses answer this. Verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. As verse 24 says, the word of God spreading is the point. 
It's what Luke is tracing all through the book of Acts. Even though James was killed, uh, the good news spread. Through the rescue of Peter, the good news spread. Through the judgment of Herod, the good news spread. Repentance, forgiveness, Jesus' death and resurrection, it kept on being shared with anyone who would listen, Jews and Gentiles alike. You see, Herod's speech wasn't the point at all in this passage. And in fact, his wealth, his power, his authority, they suddenly proved worthless, meaningless, because Herod was never really in control of the situation at all, was he? It it just seemed that way when he had ordered James killed. And when Peter miraculously escaped, Herod tried to maintain the illusion, in his anger, executing two guards on duty. But Herod wasn't in control, even though he thought he was. And we see that God decided his fate in response to his pride. Now, somewhat as an aside here, there's an interesting extra-biblical historical account that intersects with this moment. Flavius Josephus was a first-century Jewish historian, and he ended up writing a long, 20-volume set called Antiquities of the Jews. It covers Jewish history from creation all the way up to his present time in varying degrees of detail. And as a result, uh, there's some interesting stuff we can read about the politics of the time, including a narrative on the death here of Herod Aquila. Now, Josephus writes on this event, and I want to read a long section of it, translated, because I don't know ancient Greek, um, because I think it provides a bit more perspective on the type of person that Herod was. Now, you've probably got a pretty good picture already, so remember, remember your mental picture of Herod right now, because I'm curious if this might alter it at all. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life, while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who is by you called a mortal, am immediately to be hurt away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots, as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. When he had said this, his pain became violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die soon. The multitude sat in sackcloth, men, women, and children, after the law of their country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not keep himself from weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. He ruled four years under Caius Caesar. Three of them were in Philip's tetrarchy only, and the fourth, that of Herod, was added to it. And he reigned beside those three years under Claudius Caesar, during which time he had Judea added to his lands, as well as Samaria and Caesarea. The revenues that he received out of them were very great, no less than 12 millions of drachma. But he borrowed great sums from others, For he was so liberal, so very liberal, that his expenses exceeded his incomes, and his generosity was boundless. Now, what we see here is that although he was struck immediately when he didn't give credit to God, there were actually days of agonizing pain before he died. Yet, perhaps, well, it sounds like Herod actually accepted his fate well and gave credit to God being in charge. And he was a generous ruler? Like, Josephus literally says his generosity was boundless. Just from what we read in Acts, I certainly wouldn't have guessed it. 
So all of this brought me to a crazy realization. See, Herod Aquila wasn't the worst of the Herods. Does the good outweigh the bad? Josephus says his generosity was boundless, but he also put people to death on a whim and was struck down by God for taking credit he wasn't due. But he might actually have been one of the best Herods. Not a super high bar, but at least as far as we know, he didn't order the the murder of babies like his grandfather, and he wasn't his uncle who killed John the Baptist and Jesus. And although in the first half of Acts 12, he had James killed to score points from the religious leaders, in comparison with his relatives and many other kings or dictators before or since, I mean, maybe he wasn't all that bad. Herod the Great was brutal and hated by everybody, but at least Herod Aquila seemed to have been well-liked and mourned by most Jews. Now, when I was discussing this with Tim in advance, uh, Tim was like, you sound like a Herod sympathizer. (laughs) My quick response was, no, 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 of course not, no, no, no. (laughs) Well, guess what? Uh, It took me two days to realize it, but Tim was right. Enjoy it, Tim. There's your soundbite. You were right. I am kind of a Herod sympathizer. The more I prayed about this passage and asked God to help me see him in these events, the more I realized that the person I resemble in all of Acts 12, it's Herod. See, the problem is that the people are a lot more complex than they look. I think we like to look at ourselves in in easy and relative terms of of good and bad, better or worse. We we view others as heroes and villains. We constantly compare ourselves. We justify our actions. We try to see where we fit in. We have hopes and dreams. We have desires and weaknesses, noble moments and selfish moments. See, there's a spark within each of us that yearns for more and a darkness that also threatens to consume us. Anyone with me here? All right, so when we look at someone like Herod, it's a very human reaction to judge him. Was he a hero or a villain? Was he good or was he evil? Why did he deserve what happened to him? These might seem like simple and very academic questions when we look at Herod, but that's because he's been dead for almost 2,000 years. I think they're relevant this week, though, because our answers reveal uh, important beliefs and attitudes about God that impact how we live. When we ask these why questions, we're really looking for answers about God's character. We have to be careful, though, about our attitude, because it's easy to demand Scripture submit to my judgment. I mean, why didn't God intervene sooner and save James? Why didn't God punish Herod the Great or Herod Antipas as well? Or if we're really honest, perhaps we're really asking about situations in our lives, asking about times when God didn't intervene, or maybe when he didn't intervene in the lives of our loved ones. Is God punishing me? Is he rewarding me? Is God's response because of what I've done? Am am I one of the heroes? Or am I actually a villain? See, I believe the Bible's answer to these comes into focus when we look at the passage through the lens of the gospel, showing us three different truths. First, the gospel reveals that our sin is far worse than we know. We're totally like Herod. Our capacity for evil should not be understated. Second, the good news is evidence that God loves us, offering forgiveness and life in him. His grace to us is infinitely more than we can imagine, and Jesus is the proof. And third, 
that God is patient and in control and inviting. Now, depending on your background and what's going on in your life right now, my guess is that one of these three is probably harder to believe. I mean, maybe you're not buying it that sin is really that bad. Or maybe unearned forgiveness, it, it sounds too good to be possible. Even when we think life's under control and we, we've got this, or maybe it's completely going off the rails, God's patient and he's present and he gives us time to change direction and trust in him. So for each of these, I want to look at what we saw in Acts 12 and Herod 2,000 years ago and see how they might apply to us even today. So first, our sin is far worse than we know. I think we have to start with a clear understanding of sin. Sin's a short church word, but I'm talking about something weightier, the infection that's in all human hearts. It's the thing that twists and warps reality away from God and towards ourselves. It's, it's wanting what we want, focusing inward on our own experience and our own desires. Sin isn't a church term for Las Vegas vices. Sin refers to selfish and evil intent. And that's the problem, because it ex- affects us all. You've probably heard Romans 3.23 that, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, while falling short or missing the mark are good technical descriptions, for me at least, I find that these two easily minimize the death and destruction that sin causes. It's so easy to look at Herod and go, I didn't order when anyone killed. I'm nothing like that, so I'm good. But sin isn't relative, and it doesn't come from our actions. It actually comes from the heart. Let me show you a quick example. I drive a car most days of the week, but I don't think much about the responsibility and seriousness of controlling a 4,000-pound car. I mean, most of the time, I'm thinking about my schedule, uh, where I'm going, what I'm going to listen to, maybe who I'm going to talk to on the phone on the way. My focus is on me, while also paying enough attention to the road. But in my subdivision, on a route I don't take quite as often, there's a crosswalk right next to a bend in the road. Now, I know what the speed limit is, but with cars parked on both sides of the street and it being right next to that curve, um, and with reaction times and all, I probably should slow down every time I go that way. And sometimes I do because I've run this thought exercise before. Ready? Here it goes. There's never anyone crossing the street there, so it doesn't matter. Okay, but there's a crosswalk, and I have crossed there before with Levi. Okay, fine, but the speed limit's 25, 30, I, I'm, so I'm still good. Well, and other cars go stupid fast, so people have to pay attention when they cross. Well, but I know that if there were someone crossing and who stepped out at just the wrong time, my life would never be the same. It would be an accident because I always pay enough attention, right? Well, okay, most of the time I am, as long as I'm not fiddling with anything in the car. Well, in, in being a Tesla, uh, I'm like 90% sure my car has internal cameras and driving logs. So, yeah, I should probably slow down at the car crosswalk. Now, that's how it goes. Here's the question for you. How am I operating like Herod? The whole time, my focus was on me. Do you see what sin is here? Sin's thinking about what would happen to me, not what would happen to someone crossing the road. Sin is me not fearing God, but fearing the consequences. Sin is comparing myself to others and warping the truth to be what I want it to be. Sin is what makes me think of myself first. Sin is seeing others as less important, from strangers 
to even the people that we love most. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says that even though we tend to look at the letter of the law and the actions, the heart condition underneath is what's most important. Matthew 5.21 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, though our actions may be limited to avoid the consequences, it doesn't stop the evil in our hearts. The cliche is power corrupts, but what if instead all it really does is reveal? What if it's just the thing that removes the boundaries and the restraints that keep us from living as we really want to? I think that's why Herod and all the Herods were so brutal. They barely had any limits, and they saw people as stepping stones, disposable for their own glory. See, Herod Aquila had James killed to score political points for himself. His sin was more visible than mine, but it was equally as despicable. See, sin is so ubiquitous, the infection is so endemic, we, we only recognize it when people get really hurt. And I'd argue we're only surprised when we see evil fester unchecked. We're only mildly surprised when people act with impunity or without boundaries, limits, or remorse. But earlier in Romans 3, the Bible, through Paul, says this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. My point in stressing sin is to say, in many aspects, we have exactly the same heart condition as Herod, just with less power, money, and brutal family history. But that's why the gospel is such good news, because it reveals that God loves us. See, he offers forgiveness and life for him. from him. Remember how the first two words of our passage today were, then Herod? Let's take a look at Romans 5, for the two words that actually change everything. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. But God intervened for the ungodly for the powerless, for sinners. While religions may say that we can be heroes if we try hard enough, the Bible says we're actually the villains, and Jesus died for us anyway. And it's important that he didn't stay dead because his resurrection demonstrates he's, he's got the authority over the punishment of sin, death itself. See, our sin is what makes God's grace necessary. Jesus' resurrection proves it's sufficient. So what are we supposed to do with this? Repent. Change, change direction. Follow him. And if we claim to be his followers, we should be marked by thankfulness. When we understand how much we're forgiven, that Jesus paid our debt, then all the credit and glory goes to him. See, forgiveness and repentance and thankfulness, these are very unnatural responses. And it's why Jesus tells all those parables about the kingdom of God, to explain God's character to sinners like us. 
Now, you may be wondering, like, what about Herod? Was he too far gone? Once he murdered an apostle, like, wasn't he pretty much toast? No, certainly not. Acts even gives us proof a few chapters earlier. Remember how Acts talks about a guy going around zealously imprisoning and killing Christians? And I'm not talking about one of the Herods. I'm talking about the man who was there when Stephen was stoned. Yeah, Paul, who received grace and he repented and he followed Jesus. So, so no, Herod wasn't too far gone. But both Paul and Herod bring me to the last observation. See, God is patient, in control, he's inviting. Acts, Acts 12, uh, God doesn't stop Herod for killing James, nor does he immediately punish Herod either. I don't know why. I also don't know why he does intervene when Herod takes the glory for his grandiose speech. But what we do see is that in this circumstance and in all circumstances, God is in control. He was in control when Jesus was being led to the cross. He was in control when he rose Jesus from the dead. And he was in control yesterday when you and I went about our Saturdays. But he's also patient with us, inviting us to repent and follow him. He can and he does wait years, weaving threads together in his timing to bring about repentance. See, God's patience shows up as he doesn't bring immediate justice to every situation. It's grace. It's evidence of his control and his strength. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul and Herod reacted very differently to God's patience and the grace that he offers. We happen to have the perspective that tells us how each of their stories went. For our own story, though, we have no idea what comes next. And even if we're paying attention, God's plans for those around us, they're not something that we can see. So we're limited to what we can know and what we can do. We can know that God's in control and that he loves us. And as for what we can do, we can repent. We can pray. We can cheer for God's grace to all who will receive it. Because what better way for God to show the amazingness of his grace than to save sinners? So if someone's my enemy, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what I've learned from the story of Herod in Acts 12 is that I'm just like him. My goals and my hopes are often me-focused, proving I'm a sinner seeking my own glory. But God, in his grace and his patience, doesn't strike me down. He's, he's both patient and present, and his grace is enough. And that's why this week, I pray that we would have a different reaction, that we'd see God's patience for what it is, grace, and that we'd respond with repentance, thankfulness, and hope. Now, there are probably others in our lives who aren't there yet, but God's still at work, patient and in control. So when we look forward to what awaits us this week, I pray that our hope and our focus would first and foremost be to better know and follow Jesus.
Let me pray. God, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you that um, we can see your character uh, in the history and in the wisdom in the pages, God. And God, I pray that you would um, help us to follow you this week. Help us to want you more this week. And Lord, um, I also just pray for those around us that we wouldn't see them as our enemies, but that we would see them uh, as people that you desperately love and that you are patient, kind, and present. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.